You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Bride of Frankenstein entombs the mummy in a world of gods and universal monsters. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Dr. Thomas Mariani, PhD, not verified. And I am not Adam Thomas, I am Ryan Quarterman. Oh, what? That's different. <laughs> We've yep. done 95 episodes of this show, and now all of a sudden uh, we have a different co-host this evening. He's fired. We're, I'm, I'm here now. I'm the captain now. <laughs> well, really, Adam died horribly, and then I dug up his corpse, and I brought him back to life, and this was the result, is Ryan Corbin. Friend. Smoke good. <laughs> so yes, um, if you're new to the show, uh, welcome. You came in at a very strange time in our lives. Uh, this is a very odd episode to start with. Um, and if you're a regular, you are probably wondering, hey, where is Adam? And just to say all this at the top, he is not gone. Adam is going to come back. He is planned to be the regular co-host for Infinitum until the sun burns out or we stop doing this podcast. I think the sun will burn out first. Basically, what the issue was, was um, this episode was delayed from our usual Tuesday release date. And that's happened before with the show. Um, but, you know, Adam and I usually like to rally and try and, you know, come back together, because, uh, the recording history of this episode is, uh, pretty much its own, like, horrible Universal Monsters tale, uh, <laughs> where we were going to have myself, Adam, and a guest, and then we had to delay it for different family reasons from the guest, and then different sort of reasons for Adam and his own personal life, and we were going to record tonight so we could just get up in time for the sort of, uh, tie-in for this particular episode's topic, which we'll get into in a second. Um, and then over where Adam is, there is a terrible snowstorm, and his power went out, and he will not be up until tomorrow, when I will not be available, basically, to record. So I literally frantically went through my friends list, just like, can somebody please, please <laughs> help a desperate blind man? Need. Uh, and Ryan was able to answer that call. Ryan, you're not unfamiliar to the show. You were previously on our episode about the Marvel Cinematic Universe about a year ago or so, and you're and you're a dear friend of mine. Um, if any of you have not listened to that episode, uh, Ryan Quarterman and I go way back. Um, he is definitely uh, the Dr. Pretorius to my Dr. Frankenstein coming into my life. And Very true. <laughs> and just be like, let's create another person. Look at my job, people. <laughs> I'm so appreciative you came in in the nick of time to say yes. this. Dude, no worries. I, I literally, I felt bad I didn't respond to you quicker. I, I got off work and I saw your message and th I was there. <laughs> Let's do it. Adam is hopefully going to be back next week. 
Uh, that is the plan, but as is evidence from the scheduling, plans change and all that. But rest assured, Adam will return eventually, <laughs> if nothing else. Uh, but let's go ahead and continue with the show, which uh, this week, in honor of the tie-in I was speaking of, is uh, The Invisible Man is coming to theaters. Uh, we decided to do the Universal Monsters as a topic, yeah, because Universal obviously has been trying several times to reboot this uh classic series of films. For those unaware, the Universal Monsters basically was a series of films that Universal did. Some argue the start date because some say, oh, the old silent Phantom of the Opera or the Hunchback of Notre Dame starring Lon Chaney Sr. is the start of it. But really, we didn't like get much of anything in that series afterward until Dracula came out in 1931 um, in February, and then in October of that year, the original Frankenstein came out in 1931 as well. Um, and from there, it started like a non-stop sort of series of movies from 1931 until around like 56. We got like some form of Universal Monster movie like almost every year, sometimes multiple in a year. It pretty much was the original Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, for better and worse as they kind of <laughs> dwindled along and did really bad crossovers. And I'm a fan of these movies, uh, but Ryan, are you at all? I'm kind of a moderate fan. I don't, I don't go as far as like you are, but it's more like particular monsters that I'm a bigger fan of, like, like uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon, Wolfman, and uh, and more, more recently, Invisible Man. I haven't seen all of these because, like, before we did the ep- this episode, because of all the delays and such, I watched so many more of these movies. Like, you're like, well, that might be a lot of movies to try and cover, Thomas. Most of these movies are barely over an hour long. <laughs> Which is a plus. <laughs> Dude, how great is it going into a movie and knowing that, like, you'll also have the rest of your day to enjoy? But no, Ryan, like, weren't you watching Bride of Frankenstein just wondering, man, why couldn't this be two and a half hours long and have a lot more stupid plot threads that didn't mean anything and a lot yeah. more stupid over-the-top special effects that doesn't really connect thematically at all? Why can't they set up more for this universe? Exactly. Why can't half the movie be just, like, us regurgitating, like, whatever we're trying to set up for the future movies? Which we'll talk about, actually, because <laughs> uh, for those who might be new, um, what we usually do with Adam and I on this podcast is pick... Um, each of us have two movies of different quality. Um, one of us has two good movies, one of us has two bad movies. At the end of every episode, we pick a number between one and ten... Um, from the opposite person's choices, that gets us a good and then a bad feature. Uh, so last week when we were doing our picking, Adam had the two bad picks uh, for the Universal Monsters topic, and I had the two good ones. And so we ended up with uh, one of the original films in this series, uh, The Bride of Frankenstein from 1935, the oldest film we've ever covered on the show. Uh, and then the bad pick uh, from Adam's picks was The Mummy 2017, which was uh, the most recent attempt from Universal to kind of try and relaunch this franchise as it were. Yeah, they're two very different films. Which I know, Ryan, you only got a chance to watch Bride of Frankenstein given the quick prep for the show. And you've seen The Mummy, but not since it originally released. Yeah, yeah. When I saw The Mummy, it was basically the week of. So I, I'm going mostly off memory on that one. I'm sorry. I apologize. But but Bride, like, I, I literally just turned off Bride before we started <laughs> recording. I pulled it up on my iPad and, like, watched it as fast as I could, just like all great cinema should be. <laughs> let's keep on going here, uh, and let's actually get into that film that we are referencing here, which is The Bride of Frankenstein. She's alive! Alive! 
Bride of Frankenstein. So, Bride of Frankenstein, as I mentioned, came out in 1935, uh, specifically April 20th, 1935. And, of course, uh, this is the sequel to Frankenstein, which came out in 1931. Um, That film, along with this one, was directed by James Whale. And uh, this is obviously based on the characters created by Mary Shelley in the original Frankenstein novel. Uh, The the interesting sort of backstory to this is that uh, this is the first sort of sequel in a Universal Monsters series. Uh, Because, obviously, before this, you had, like I mentioned, Dracula first, Frankenstein... Um, and The Invisible Man was 1933, which was also directed by James Whale. The Monster series was definitely in its boom here. And keep in mind also, even when like that series started in 1931, sound film was in its infancy. Like, we've gotten the first sound film in 1927. Damn, that's actually a good point. And you don't really... Because of how smooth everything is in this film... Like, I, I, spoiler alert, I really fucking love this film. Uh, you don't pick up on the fact that it's like a new thing that we're working with. It doesn't feel in any way like aged more than like what you would already expect a film to be aged. Like you kind of do feel that with like, say the, the films I mentioned earlier, like Dracula and Frankenstein, especially Dracula has like no score aside from like the opening bit from the Swan Lake. Like that's, there's no music whatsoever. And it's directed by Todd Browning, who was mostly like a silent film director at that time, mm-hmm. so you, you kind of feel it there. But even, like, the first Frankenstein, which I don't know, have you seen the original Frankenstein? Yes, yes, I have. I watched it, like, a year ago. I remember liking it. Uh, I found it a little slow. Uh, also, way less funny than this one, which is kind of what threw me off about Bride of Frankenstein, Is whereas, like, the original Frankenstein was very, like, serious and straightforward, it felt like. Well, for sure, that felt definitely like sort of the one where James Whale came onto that production as like, okay, this is a studio gig, I will do it, I'll do the best possible version of it, which I mean, you can see, like, there's there's so many, like, iconic bits and pieces of the original Frankenstein, still making a great movie, so like, yeah. the best version of, like, the simple Frankenstein movie you could probably get, because it's also another one that's, like, only about seven minutes long, it gets quick to the point, everything's there, um, it's, Karloff is really interesting in that one, too, given the fact that he does not speak whatsoever compared to this movie, and the yeah. whole gimmick of that one was that he actually took out his false teeth so that he could look so sunken in compared to this movie where he's much fuller face i didn't actually notice that that's awesome definitely that was a movie that james whale did like the best possible version of like a studio movie at the time where people yeah. had like their fucking cigars just like fuck it we don't know what this is you know the sound movies are new fucking do something james do it and uh, he did and that movie was incredibly successful and they had no idea like dracula had been successful but then Frankenstein comes along and it's like the massive, massive blockbuster hit. And they kept going to James Will saying, please, we need you to do another one. It's like, no, I'll do my Invisible Man. Which you can admit, Ryan, this feels more in tone with Invisible Man compared to Frankenstein. Yeah, absolutely. But I again, this even feels more silly than... And, and I don't mean silly in a bad way at all uh, than something like Invisible Man. Where there's moments in Invisible Man where he's like... He's just being a dick. Like, it's just the air calling you a bitch constantly. Whereas, like, Bride of Frankenstein has genuinely, like, 
bizarre side characters. It almost feels like uh, like Sam Raimi extras. The film is full of incredibly great old women. Oh, especially one who was also in The Invisible Man, Uno O'Connor, yes. who in this plays yes. the maid, who is so phenomenal. Every time she just comes on and just screams... <laughs> like something showing up so great <laughs> and just get that classic sort of like over the top british accent which all these extras do um and yeah. do such an incredible job with to, to go back to what we we're sort of the the through line of this um they tried to make a frankenstein sequel for a while because obviously 31 to 35 that was in development for so long and they had made some of the other universal monster movies that would come in between and then universe was like please james you're the only one who can really do this he's like fine I'll do it, but I'm not going to do just the same Frankenstein movie again. I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. And they're like, sure, go ahead. And uh, yeah, he did whatever the fuck he wanted. <laughs> Dude, hell yeah. I love artists having fucking full control and just going crazy. That rules. Well, yeah, especially considering that that would obviously, like, in a modern landscape, where it's like, say, John Favreau coming back for Iron Man 2, like, he didn't get to do whatever the fuck he wanted. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was, spoilers, that was not the case whatsoever, and even in these modern studio movies, that rarely manages yeah. to fucking happen. And I think it's also because, like, at this time, Universal was definitely more in a stage of experimentation, because it's like, like I mentioned, the sound film is new, things are a lot crazier. It was a lot of credit to, it's uh, Carl Lemley Jr., who was the guy who ran the studio at this time, was somebody who, at the time when, like, Dracula and Frankenstein came out, loved monster movies. Like, his father had run the studio back when Phantom of the Opera was a thing, and he was like, wow, I'm so fascinated with, like, the, this monster and, like, the Hunchback Notre Dame. We should do more of these movies, Dad. And he's like, no, nah, there's not a lot of money in horror pictures. You got shut right the fuck up. <laughs> Come 1931. <laughs> fuck the 30s. <laughs> uh, yes, but they do yield stuff like A Bride of Frankenstein, which, Ryan, was this the first time you had seen this movie? Yeah, yeah, and I was pretty fucking misled by this title. I expected the bride to actually, like, be around, like, like serving up looks a lot more than she fucking... She does. W what we got out of it was pretty great. I really was expecting more... Of the bride herself. What I kind of like about the fact that she's in it for just a short amount of time at the very end of the movie um, is that the bride sort of acts as the really sort of tragic punctuation note of a punchline for the sad, tragic comedy of the Frankenstein monster's <laughs> fucking yeah. story in this movie. Because he spends the entire movie after, you know, being horribly mutilated um, in the original movie, like, burned, and he's very bloated here based on, like, being in the wall of water damage and stuff like that that he had. Um, he wants to just, like, find some kind of kinship, some kind of friendship with somebody, and every single turn, it's just like, fuck off, nope, yeah. get out of here, and every single time, it's just like, and finally, he finds the idea of, like, oh, they're going to make a mate, a friend for me, specifically, the, these Frankenstein monster doctors are going to do it. When he finally gets to meet this mate, when he's sort of trying to force this being into this relationship, uh, it completely falls apart and he's like, she hate me, fuck this, I'm going to destroy the entire castle. It caught me off guard, because I really did, like, one, expect her to be in it more, like I said, but when she showed up, like, given the title, I thought, like, oh, man, my, my dude's gonna get in, like, a healthy relationship, he's gonna be, he's just gonna be living life, but no, it's like, he's like 1930s Arthur Fleck, <laughs> like, society's beating him down. <laughs> 
despite, you know, this being a shorter movie than a Joker and not commenting as directly on sort of issues of the time, it feels so much more universal, pardon the pun, to just like the the sort of weird tragic experience, especially for like a James Whale, who was at the, one of the few openly gay directors at the time. This feels so much like an outsider story from an outsider perspective. Yeah. In a way that feels like very genuine and tragic, just especially the the relationship alone, where like the Frankenstein has this buddy thing with the blind man. The the first exposure I had to any of these movies, honestly, was Young Frankenstein, the parody. <laughs> yeah, um, which there's an, an infamous awesome sort of like sequence where Gene Hackman plays that character and constantly <laughs> just abuses Frankenstein intentionally in that movie. Um, here it just still plays so sweet and genuine and tragic, and I think a lot of that does have to do with uh, the performer O. P. Hedgie. I think is so phenomenal in this role. I think he just yeah. like acts perfectly off of Karloff and seems convincingly blind, and, but has so much of like this desire to be with some kind of kinship, some kind of friend in an outsider way. That's so interesting. It's like hmm, two men off in the woods, just wanting to be with each other, and a couple of assholes come in and just destroy all their happiness. Damn, I actually fuck. This is deep, dude. I didn't it's realize really that. <laughs> dude, holy shit, Tom. No, and to be fair, I'm not the first person to point this out. This has been the study for, like, decades now of just how inherently gay this movie is. Do you see any of that, like, on yeah. your own with some of the other elements? Well, I mean, I I kind of picked up on, like, the bride just absolutely rejecting him seemed very, like, her re- rejecting what's basically told for her at that time seemed like a strong f- argument for her being her own person even if she was created for a purpose, like, basically just being with Frankenstein. Well, I mean, it, it's definitely, like I said, so much of this movie is Frankenstein being shown for, like, you are different, you're trying to just, like, hang out with all these other weirdos, you're not, you know, a true heteronormative person like us in the village, so yeah. therefore we're going to shun you. And then he's like, well, you know what, I'll finally try and, like, have a heteronormative relationship with this woman, and that ends up you know, completely falling apart, and he's like, I can't fucking win. We don't deserve <laughs> to live the, that weird inherent tragedy, which is, like, also interesting considering some of the other sort of, like, coded gay characters, like, obviously, Ernest Thessinger as Dr. Pretorius, who is fucking amazing. Just, like, one yeah. of the most iconic performances of any of these movies. Um, just being, obviously, very queer in a way that's yes. so delightful. He just is, yes. like, fully embracing it. And just the way he has such, like, obvious venom for some of these things, like when he talks about, oh, you and your Bible stories. Yes, his delivery on lines like that, and he has this way of delivering lines that's so perfect, and his whole, like, keeping the king and queen separate in their little jars is really funny to watch. Well, no, yeah, and it's such a weird effects marvel for the time, like 1935. It looks relatively convincing that it's just yeah. like these, these little people in jars. And also what I like about that is it's so much of Pretorius's character is about controlling people. In that case, he has his own little jar society where he's made satiric versions of, like, royalty or the archbishop or um, any of the number of these other sort of, like, figures that people would, like, 
put so highly. He's put them in yeah. little jars and made them his little playthings. And then as it keeps going on, he has more and more control over, like, whatever servants are there, or over Dr. Frankenstein at this time, or even the Frankenstein monster, which that's another fucking amazing bit. When, like, everyone sees this Frankenstein monster in the movie, everyone else is like, oh my god, it's the monster, it's terrifying, it's horrible. And Pretorius sees him like, oh, I thought I was alone. <laughs> yeah, it just pours him up a drink. He's like, what up, friend? He knows that, like, as a weird outsider like himself, Pretorius realizes, like, well, if I can't be a part of society, I am going to use all of my intellect and all of my power to completely control what I can, including yeah. the Frankenstein creature. Yeah. Um, and did you think maybe his inclusion kind of made the actual Dr. Frankenstein character a bit more sidelined? in a bad way, Ryan, or do you think that still worked for the film? I think it was an improvement, if I'm being honest. Uh, I don't have very strong opinions about the Dr. Frankenstein character from the first one. And at least with this one, Pretorius has fucking personality out the ass. Every scene that he's in, you fucking are focused on him. Whereas, like, I'm fine with Dr. Frankenstein taking, like, a backseat or, like, a side character role to someone with a little more personality. Well, yeah, and plus a lot of that had to do with necessity, because Colin Clive, who was in the original Frankenstein, was, one, he had actually, like, damaged his leg right before shooting, but also he was, like, a notorious drunk at this time, to the point where it would be, like, he would have good days and bad days kind of thing. And he only died, like, two years after this movie came out at a very young age. Um, but it, 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 I think his role works more in this weird sort of meta-contextual way of showing sort of, like, this one sort of quote-unquote stable heteronormative relationship between him and the Elizabeth character, uh, played by Valerie Hobson, uh, they are two people like, oh, we just got married and this horrible situation happened, and they're falling the fuck apart. Like that scene early on where she's talking about, oh, look, I see this vision, a specter, over in the corner. (laughs) Just like, oh man, this relationship is not gonna work. This is fucking crumbling so hard. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, he's also so ineffectual as a person. He's just like, he keeps saying, oh, I'm totally going to uh, completely abandon my Frankenstein ways. It's like being a Frankenstein doctor is his addiction. He's like, honey, it's over. I've I've quit the sauce. I'm throwing out all the needles. I'm totally not going to be a Dr. Frankenstein anymore. You hear that, Pretorius? And then he's just like, okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Just one more time, dude. One last job. (laughs) <laughs> one last ride <laughs> see that's what Universal's missing they need to just do full on Fast and Furious with these Universal movies holy shit dude imagine Vin Diesel is like a Frankenstein monster briefly do a detour on this let's Fast and Furious this to the side <laughs> so, so who in the Fast and Furious universe is the different Universal monsters okay you got- already Paul Walker is Invisible Man <laughs> oh well th- from necessity I think that's the case yeah Dude, perfect, right? Uh, right. Vin Diesel, I think we already established, would be a pretty solid Frankenstein. Right. He has the uh, brow and he has the, the head is pretty flat for it. It works perfectly. Yeah. Michelle Rodriguez as the bride of, of Frankenstein. Yes. Uh, fuck, who's going to be Dracula? The, the bummer is that given that they kind of separated off like Hobbs and Shaw and did its own thing, Satham I would love to see as a, like a weird buff Dracula. Oh my god, that's so good. I was, I was going to say... Um, Fuck, who's uh, that one Shaw brother from Dracula Untold? Luke Evans as Dracula again, reprising his role. Yeah, bring him back. We're getting the gang back together. Um, (laughs) And I know there was a point where Universal was like, oh, let's do a Wolfman with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, which thankfully that's not happening anymore. 
That sounds so terrible. I wish it happened. <laughs> it just feels like, is this like from the Van Helsing universe? When you try to do that, that feels way more like a Van Helsing thing. That really does. I, dude, oh, that sounds so gross. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's steer back into Bride of okay. Frankenstein here. Let's, let's talk right. about the classic movie as opposed to best movies of all time, Fast and Furious. There's a delineation <laughs> here. I guess also, what do you think of sort of the, the personality that Whale brings to this movie? Because you've seen Lee's Invisible Man and the Frankenstein. Um, yes. What do you think sort of makes him kind of feel like more of an auteur compared to other Universal monster directors who were kind of for hire? You know, I, the one thing that I can really say is, it, even though it's black and white, it's a lot less drab the way he makes things. It feels... Far more alive. Like, there's a scene in, in Bride of Frankenstein where falls through that building at the beginning and lands in the water. And just the way he disappears into the into the rubble is more alive than, like, uh, like something like what happened with Dracula, where that's kind of more standardly directed. Um, it's, it's much more like a stage play, because it was really based yeah. on the stage play version of Dracula that Bela Lugosi was in. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely feel that. He feels the most cinematic. He feels like, even with the original Frankenstein, with the way that castle looks, and the weird sort of German expressionistic different angles, the weird design of that castle from the original that carries over here, um, yeah. Whale always felt like the more cinematic director, even though he was also from England, a, a play director for the most part. Um, I just love the way that he makes even sort of like simple scenes like, oh, the mob is coming to chase after people. That's a scene that's in like all of these fucking movies. So <laughs> many of these movies have like uh, fucking people off to the side. I'm sure just like, get your pitchforks, get your torches, light them for an extra five cents. Like the, the, there definitely feels like this grander epic scope to like any of the crowds just like there's a wonderful shot when the mob is chasing after frankenstein in the woods and they find him and they put him up on the cross that feels yeah. so inherently cinematic far more than any of the previous uh universal monster movies to that date and also adds sort of like some of the weird uh, religious subtext that's kind of here in the movie as well um but like that, that also just feels like it's such a big grand scale moment that it sells the tragedy of frankenstein all the more that he's just being put in this horrible situation. And I love the fact that it also is this great comedic beat later on when, like, this big, massive moment of, like, capturing the Frankenstein monster, putting him inside the dungeon happens, and the Burgermeister, which... We, we need more Burgermeisters in movies. The Burgermeister later says, like, okay, we jailed him up, it was pretty simple, everything's <laughs> fine. And then immediately fucking Frankenstein breaks out. <laughs> sort of another great example of, like, completely tearing down traditional authority. In that scene, while they're, like, tying him down, the old lady in the bar is just like, you keep him locked up! <laughs> like, this movie has the best old ladies. I love this movie's old ladies. <laughs> That's true. It feels like these old ladies were very would very much inspire like the sort of Pepper Pot characters from Monty Python. Like whenever they yeah. dress up as old ladies, it feels like <laughs> that's just another thing. Watching this movie from 1935, how much it still resonates, how much mm -hmm. you still see the influence of like a Bride of Frankenstein. Even like that scene I mentioned with like the woods and everybody capturing him, that feels so indicative. Like just four years later, like The Wizard of Oz, in terms of like its landscape and its sort of grand scale, and even the use of like the actual set. The set looks so yeah. much like Oz. Yeah, absolutely. What are some other sort of influences you kind of caught watching it this time, Ryan, that you can see later on resonate now, like, 85 years later? When you first see the bride and she's kind of looking around, the, the way she's backlit is really fucking beautiful and kind of reminded me a little bit of, like, 
some of the shots in like uh Ingmar Bergman's uh The Virgin Spring. Oh fuck, we're getting real classy with this now. Bergman references. You don't get that from Adams. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean no, I, I definitely can see that. I, I also see so much you mentioned Sam Raimi earlier. I think you get a yes. lot of that in terms of uh, like some of the Canton angles we do get in this movie, and also just the use of certain like side characters. Like the Dwight Fry who played Fritz in the original movie, uh who was in a bunch of these movies. Like Dwight Fry would just show up for the first like ten years of these Frankenstein movies is just a random villager. In in this case, this is my favorite of sort of his characters because uh, he kind of played in the original. Fritz was sort of the, what would later become the Igor character that would actually appear in Son of Frankenstein and kind of be the stereotype for like the assistant hunchback that would follow around Frankenstein. And in this movie, he kind of plays a weird in-between between like yeah. being a regular lab assistant and um, kind of like a grave robber, crazy, like weird, scruffy guy. And I love the fact yeah. that that character is actually combined from like three different characters in the script. And they just gave it all to Dwight Fry because they love Dwight Fry so much. Humor that's coming out of that character that would inspire a lot of the dark comedy that would come in some of these later directors that we know and love from like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. With like him saying stuff like, this is no job for a murderer. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> taking all the body parts and shit like that. Or um, the whole thing where it's like, oh, we need some kind of young cadaver that we can kind of implant a brain from. Can can you get that? I'll try my best. <laughs> All this other shit. Dude, the, the scene where Pretorius just, like, mouths the words of uh, a police case to him, and he, he says it, is just so perfect. This works as such a great sequel to the original Frankenstein, because you get so much more about not just the characters and not just some of these themes that are going on, but also even just the actual process of making the Frankenstein monster. Like, in the original, it's just, oh, he goes up the slab, all the way up to the roof, lightning happens, and then they come back down, you don't really see anything. And here, that weird fucking giant cone device that's on top of the castle that's a massive giant thing that yeah. it, it just adds so much in a weird way where it's like you almost don't want to see that in sequels normally of like oh let's see how more of the sausage is made and in this case whale's like well we can see that but also i'm gonna make it fucking weird yeah Even, yeah like now like i said 85 years later this movie's still weird yeah it absolutely is weird and like i mentioned um creature from the black lagoon and you see a little bit of that weirdness, but it never goes as far as something like Bride of Frankenstein does. Whereas it's just so much more committed to like having fun and being as like campy as possible. It really does feel kind of like in some ways a birthplace of, of like what we would take now as like modern horror camp. Oh, no, definitely. This feels like the one of the earliest examples of the horror comedy. Like, you wouldn't yeah. get that subgenre for what it is without the Brian Frankenstein being a major stepping stone. Yeah. And, and, and even what you're, you're talking about, sort of with Creature of the Black Lagoon, um, watching so many of these movies, like, I actually hadn't seen Creature from the Black Lagoon until we were doing research for this episode. Um, I decided to finally watch it for the first time. And it's a fun movie, but you definitely feel like that is at the very tail end of these movies, where it's definitely a lot cheaper um, yeah, spend all the money possible on the suit and nothing else. Because <laughs> it's really just shot like, oh, let's just put fucking Amazon trees around the tanks at Universal. Like, the two tanks that we fucking have full of water. Yeah. But but it's even more pronounced in, like, as these Frankenstein movies went along. That was the main thing I watched was, like, any of the Universal monster movies featuring Frankenstein. Uh, you just see, like, even to Son of Frankenstein, which is the one that would follow this, is fine. It's the last time Boris Karloff's Frankenstein. He's barely in it. He basically has the role that the bride has 
in that movie. Oh, wow. Okay. He's, he's barely in it because he didn't really want to do it, and he doesn't even speak anymore. He wears a weird fur coat bear, like, vest for some reason. <laughs> okay. Like, okay. I don't know why. And then, like, in Ghost of Frankenstein, it's uh, Lon Chaney Jr., the Wolfman guy, playing him, which is, like, yeah. doesn't fit at all. I really like the Wolfman. I love, you know, Lon Chaney Jr. does a great job in that role. But he, they try to make him, like, the mummy and Frankenstein, and so many different other characters, it's like, no, this doesn't, this doesn't work at all. <laughs> yeah. It's just, like, really sad, it keeps going along, and they got, like, a stuntman, Glenn Strange, to play him later in the movies, and it gets, it just gets really sad, to the point where the last Universal Frankenstein appearance, um, that wasn't in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, was in House of Dracula, he has, once again, even less of a role than the bride does. Where, like, in the last two minutes he comes up, destroys the castle in a way that's using stock footage from Ghost of Frankenstein. It's so fucking cheap. <laughs> I almost really think that role dies with Karloff. Because, obviously, like, Karloff kind of invented what we know Frankenstein as. That's the thing with the Universal Monster movies. Is, like, we even before any of us saw these movies, what we're aware of from these sort of characters through pop culture is so based on these movies. The, like, first handful of them, really. Like, your introduction to the characters are what sticks with you. It's not all the sequels. It's not the, like, weird crossovers. It's those, like, first films where they appear that, like, really are what have stuck and lasted through the test of time. I think Bride has the most, at least, lasting influence on Frankenstein, less visually, but as a character. I think as a character, so much of like what we like about the Frankenstein monster comes from this particular movie in pop yeah. culture. Well, um, we could talk forever about Bride of Frankenstein. There's, there's so much to actually discuss, but um, I think we'll sort of segue into our final thoughts here. Ryan, your final thoughts on Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, I think it's an absolute blast. I I love it. It's, it's funny. It's campy. It's kind of fucking sad at the same time uh it's definitely probably jumped up to being one of my favorite monster movies yeah and for me it's just one of my favorite movies of all time i i genuinely think bride of frankenstein not just because of the influence that's obviously there or even some of the thematics that we talked about like obviously we're two straight white dudes but even we can notice a lot of the queer themes that are very clearly in here and have really yeah. lasted as like sort of horror has evolved especially from a queer subtext on it, it it's such a phenomenally especially emotional story because like what works about any of these universal monsters is really getting the inherent tragedy of any of these characters. Like, the Wolfman is a man who doesn't want to kill people and he wants to kill himself to prevent that. Uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon is this sort of weird bottom recesses creature that just wants some kind of love and is completely punished for it as well. Um, and that turns him into something meaner um, as time goes along. Or, like, Dracula is like this aristocratic, very suave, debonair character that is constantly stuck into the shadows because of who he is as a monster. But I think out of all of them, the reason I kind of think Frankenstein is my favorite of any of these creatures is just because you believe that inherent tragedy so much more from somebody who is a complete innocent. Somebody who is just, like, bore out of death, come back to life, doesn't know the world around him, and everyone completely destroys him for it. That is such a beautiful, tragic, very much a character I have so much personal tie to, and I think just, like, especially in this movie, establishes that tragedy so perfectly that I think it makes it this one in particular, this particular movie, a masterpiece, and just one of the best films, horror or otherwise, to ever come out. Absolutely. Well, and uh, we're going to get to another classic in a second. Um, <laughs> but before we do, uh, why don't you hear about this ESO show you could queue up right after ours. 
America. Do you like listening to knowledgeable people who are passionate about what they do? Wilbur does, don't you, Wilbur? But what about Daisy? She likes to listen to shows about pop culture, movies, television, and comic books. Good thing Wilbur and Daisy found the Nerd Bliss Podcast. You, too, can find the Nerd Bliss Podcast at nerdblisspodcast.com and on the ESO Network. Just remember, Nerd Bliss is one word. All right, and now let's get to uh, the latest attempt to try and reboot these monsters in some way. Uh, 2017's The Mummy. What the hell? Uh... So, uh, The Mummy came out June 9th, 2017, uh, was directed by Alex Kurtzman, and uh, was written by several people, uh, many, many people, um, as an attempt to launch the Dark Universe, which at the time was a very ambitious goal of Universal, to be like, you know what, we see how big, like, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, and DC at the time was ramping up, like, Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, this universe-building thing is gonna work for everybody, including us, we did the Universal Monsters back in the day, we can do it again, right here, right now, and, uh, they decided to premiere all of that with The Mummy, uh, which features Tom Cruise, um, as a thief who's trying to find different artifacts, uh, that, um, other archaeologists are already trying to find, um, and then he unleashes a mummy that uh, wreaks havoc, and also Russell Crowe is there as part sophisticated science man, and also Cockney brawler when he gets angry, um, as he turns into, from Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde, while also trying to collect all these monsters together, um, this did not start the Dark Universe, uh, the new Invisible <laughs> Man is not part of that franchise, uh, this kind of, it cost $130 million to make, um, was a head box office of $410 million at the time, which, uh, might not seem like small potatoes, but for Universal was considered disastrous. Also considering, like, you don't ever figure, like, oh, hey, they also spent, like, $350 million promoting it, and they also had so much in stock about, like, oh, we're, we're gonna be in pre-production on our Bride of Frankenstein remake, that we're also going to do and connect this to. Yeah, um, it's insane. The the amount of, like, promotion that went into making this a universe. In fact, like, they had a photo that has all of these stars, uh, like, photoshopped together. There's Johnny Depp and Javier Bardem and the cast of The Mummy. <laughs> right, and, and Javier Bardem was going to be Frankenstein, and yeah. we're going to have the Johnny Depp as the Invisible Man, hence why... Uh, we we have some random nobody um, as the Invisible Man in this new movie, as opposed to a big star like Johnny yeah. Depp. We don't have that here. Sorry, I just thought about Johnny Depp as the Invisible Man, but he's just wrapping himself in scarves. <laughs> I mean, that's what I would have done if we had to do that. If we had to see the Invisible Man Johnny Depp, just like, just put him in scarves and weird hats. You can save money on wardrobe, because he'll just bring that in. Yeah, like, that's that's perfect. But yeah, The Mummy is... 
insane. <laughs> it's it's the definition of putting the the cart before the horse. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it's like pretty much like you put the cart before the horse, and the cart is full of like so much dark universe merchandise. Like t-shirts <laughs> and action figures, and all of a sudden, just just brimming with all this merchandise, the, the horse is just like, nah, man, I'm not carrying that, and just rolls down the hill and lights on fire. Okay, wasn't the girl? I, I've heard conflicting things on this. The girl in who played the mummy in the film, Sophia Yes. Shout out to Climax. Watch that movie. Or even Kingsman, which was sort of like her breakout that got people interested in like her to be in this movie. Nah, shout outs to Climax only. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, let's let's talk briefly about fucking Russell Crowe. Does he actually transform or is he just get like a little more aggressive? Well, I think the thing is that's both. Because their version of him transforming is him, like, turning sort of, like, a purplish gray, and then yes. once again getting a Cockney accent and starting brawling with Tom Cruise, like, oh, I might, you're not gonna do that to me, and then he just starts, like, beating the shit out of him, which I'll admit, like, uh, full disclosure, um, Ryan, I know you love listening to this podcast religiously, so you remember uh, about a month ago or so, uh, two months ago, we uh, put out our Best and Worst of the Decade episodes, and we did our lists, yeah, and I, ex- exactly right, and I put <laughs> The Mummy as my worst of the decade. That was a at, big mistake. At that time. Well, and, and that's the thing, because, like, I heard some people, like, our original guest for this episode was even, like, messaging me about, like, oh, it's not that bad. So I'm like, yeah. okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go back into this and see about it. Um, I will agree that I think it might have been too harsh to put as the absolute worst of the decade upon seeing it a second time. I think a lot of the animosity sort of came from when I saw it originally, of like, oh, God, are they going to do this to all the Universal Monsters? Oh, my fucking God. Are they going to like this? <laughs> just do the worst job with this possible and now knowing that's not happening and visiting it now it's still really fucking terrible uh but it's not necessarily worse as much as like it's a weird artifact of this specific time like come 10 20 years from now when people are just like going through like oh we're on invisible man 75 um from blumhouse uh what happened like have they ever tried to do this before it's like oh yes young one I remember the Tom Cruise mummy days. Dude, that, that's the thing, and, and it goes back to what you were saying about it being an artifact, and that's partially why I don't hate this film. Uh, I, I do think it's incredibly bad and hilariously misguided, but it's very interesting, and the production history was interesting, and it makes weird and constantly baffling choices that... I prefer to, you know, just boring shit all the time. Well, that's true, Um, I I guess, to a certain extent. Like, some of the choices definitely feel like that. Like, on paper, if you told me any of these things. Like, particularly, even the one that, like, still kind of, like, lingers as offending me probably the most is the Jake Johnson character, which Tom Cruise has his buddy in the movies, played by Jake Johnson of New Girl and Jurassic World. A funny guy. I've seen him. Yeah. Quite, quite talented. I, mean, I think he's very funny. Um, in this movie, he plays ostensibly st- the Griffin Dunn part from American Werewolf in London, which is another Universal monster movie from later in like the 80s era. And uh, they were just like, oh, let's just steal this entire concept full sale where he keeps haunting our main character. <laughs> and that is the part that really just like, this is so such a fucking transparent, soulless, shitty version of something yeah. that's great. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It's transparent and bad, and 
goes back to what I was saying. It's fucking interesting that anyone thought that that was like the go-to move for a mummy movie. It was like, yeah, let's just let's just have fucking weird ghosts like haunting Tom Cruise. And and just talking about like, oh hey, you're in the ladies' room now, and keep on emphasizing on this whole thing where like Tom Cruise and Annabelle Wallace plays his love interest in this movie, um, and she initially comes in just saying like, oh hey, we had one night stand, and um, he wasn't very good in bed, and Tom Cruise has that stuck in his fucking craw the whole <laughs> he can't get over the idea that she wasn't satisfied by him in bed. It's this weird thing where, like, the whole Nick Morton character, which is Tom Cruise's character, his sort of weirdly inherent to the character is the idea of, like, oh, he's irredeemable, which is why the Emotep mummy monster attaches to him, because she needs somebody who doesn't really have a soul of any sort, quote-unquote. But the way that Tom Cruise plays it, it's not so much like, oh, he's, like, an irredeemable, interesting, monstrous character, but he's also not at all sympathetic enough, which they try to do, to get you invested. So he's just kind of, like a tool who you don't want to see in your movie. <laughs> Which means, like, it appeases neither side of this. Yeah, that's that's perfect. Um, I, I totally forgot about the whole not pleasuring her thing, and I, dude, I take it, I take back everything I said. This movie's great. This movie rules. <laughs> 10 to 10, where's my dark universe? Dude, I totally blanked out. <laughs> There's numerous, like, moments dedicated to him going, like, Oh, what do you mean you didn't come? Incredible. Because, <laughs> like, the, the thing is, Tom Cruise has done that character before. That's some of, his, like, Tom Cruise's yeah. best roles, and, like, particularly, like, in Edge of Tomorrow. He plays like, a yeah. cowardly piece of shit, and it's perfect. He does that so well, and you actually get to see him kind of redeem himself as the movie goes along in an interesting way. As opposed to this movie, I think, wants that to happen, but doesn't know how to accomplish that whatsoever, because it feels like it's also holding the audience's hand at every turn. The movie starts yeah. with the point where Russell Crowe was, like, excavating, like, this London underground. And he starts talking about, like, oh, here's the backstory of our Emotep character. Ten minutes later, Annabelle Wallace says the exact same backstory. And then another ten minutes later, she says the exact same backstory again. <laughs> and then another 30 minutes later, I believe Sophia Patella herself says this backstory. Like, they want to constantly tell yeah. the audience, like, in case you were looking at your phone, here's the motivation of our villain character. Isn't there also, like, a scene that's a flashback that shows you as well? That's how the movie starts, with, like, Russell Crowe narrating. It's that flashback, and we get several bits of that flashback throughout whenever they tell this fucking story. Incredible film. You know, Ryan, you're right, this is cinema. This is pure cinema. Martin Scorsese hates Marvel movies, but fucking loves the money. Fucking Kurtzman could make The Irishman, but Scorsese could never make The Mummy. <laughs> we should also emphasize that, yeah, so Alex Kurtzman, who was tasked to be sort of like the showrunner for this dark universe, and has had several chances that I'm so surprised he still keeps getting, where like he was the guy who wrote the first Star Trek movie, and then the second Star Trek movie, and then he wrote the first Transformers movie, and the second Transformers movie, and then he also wrote Amazing Spider-Man 2, and he's, he's been involved in, like, so many of these attempts to, like, make a big franchise of these characters, and he mostly, uh, fails horribly. Yet, once again, he is tasked with being like, no, you're going to, like, spearhead Tyrant Dark Universe, and also make this your only second feature, because he made, like, some dramedy with, like, Elizabeth Banks and Chris Pine prior to this. Oh, shit! He made that? It was. I think it's People Like Us, I think is what it's called. That's actually a really great film. 
Well, I, I, I have not seen it, so I cannot judge, but um, yeah. it feels like definitely a big sort of leap to go from that small indie dramedy to... Yeah, the huge. <laughs> That's I never would have fucking even guessed that those two films had any kind of correlation at all. People like Us is so sweet and great. You should definitely check it out. The Mummy is also sweet and great and a masterpiece, and check that out too. I, I, it's very Richard Linklater asks. This is actually part of the Before trilogy. <laughs> it's, it's a middle chapter. Yeah, dude. Uh, <laughs> the thing about Kurtzman, he was paired with. Orsi for a while, right? It was Orsi and Kurtzman. Right, right. Like, they, they were on the Transformers movies in the, the first couple Star Treks, and then Roberto yeah. Orsi came out as, like, a really big, like, conspiracy theorist. So he's like, I don't know this guy. The, Wait, really? <laughs> yeah, yes. Dude, that rules. I was gonna ask you what happened to Orsi, uh, but now we know. <laughs> he was gonna do Star Trek Beyond. He was gonna direct that. And then he just came out and was like, oh, you're, like, a crazy person. Uh, <laughs> shuffle off to the side. Did Kurtzman get any other opportunities after The Mummy came out? Yeah, because now he's spearheading, like, the Star Trek TV shows on CBS+. Plus. It's like, the sort of the big showrunner for those as well, because it's like, well, uh, you, you did Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness. Those are fine. <laughs> one of them is pretty great, and the other yeah. one is not. <laughs> yeah. Even, like, removing, like, sort of the baggage that he has. The biggest yeah. problem with, like, him making this a second movie is, like, a lot of the action feels incomprehensible. Um, especially yeah. at the very opening, there's a whole sequence where Jake Johnson and Tom Cruise are, like, trying to go around this one town in Mesopotamia to try and end up, you know, discovering the mummy tomb. And there's a whole action sequence where I can't tell where they're going, and it constantly just, like, breaks every conceivable cinematic rule. <laughs> so weird, and you can't tell what's going on. Like, only the only action sequence that at all works is the most, sort of, Mission Impossible-esque set piece of, like, them inside of the uh, airplane that's in free fall. That's oh, the one yeah, yeah. action sequence that actually kind of works, and but it feels also very, like, this is a second unit thing. Like, Alex yeah. was not involved in this. <laughs> that's that's also the notorious scene from the uh, the first trailer that had that. <laughs> right, yes. For those, for those who were unaware, um, the IMAX trailer uh, was dropped on Twitter, and it ended up um, coming out with one audio track missing, so all you heard were people making noises and a few sound effects, uh, which made it hilarious. You heard a clip of that when I put the trailer. That is that trailer. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's it's the best thing to come out of this movie. It's so fucking funny. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Particularly there's a bit where um, the Annabelle Wallace character gets like parachuted out, and yeah. she's like, no! Mm. <laughs> that's, that's the vocal effect. I just love Tom Cruise, like, ah! Of course, that's, that's the masterpiece part of that trailer, <laughs> obviously. Iconic. Uh, it, it, it is pretty iconic. But do you, from what you remember, Ryan, agree maybe about, like, sort of this, turning the horror into action in this case, do you think that, like, worked for this individual movie at all? So, based on what I remember, I thought it was an interesting attempt to try and do something with it but the problem is like turning the mummy into like an adventure film or an action film like we we had that <laughs> we have brendan fraser's mummy films like those exist <laughs> and so for me i i kind of was more perplexed as to why if they were going to start a universe why not lean a little heavier into the horror elements than than an action element because some of these monsters I don't really see as being like action heavy 
like material to work with. Well, someone forgot about the iconic I Frankenstein, which they were clearly trying to chase. Oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> we should have the, the, the Dark Universe I really want is just all these really bad sort of like 2000 to like 2015 era reboot attempts. Like, get Benicio de Toro's Wolfman. Get <laughs> fucking that version of I Frankenstein. Get all these bullshit versions together. Kevin Bacon Hollow Man. Who, oh my god, yes! <laughs> 10 out of 10, dude. Kevin Bacon's Hollow Man and Benicio del Toro together. <laughs> you thought you were the only Dark Universe. Well, and I think, that's the thing, I actually saw that too as well for the first time. I hadn't seen that before, the Benicio del Toro Wolfman. I don't hate that movie necessarily, but that yeah. feels almost kind of like the inverse of the problem with this movie, where that one's trying too hard to be reverent to the original Universal Monster aesthetic. And aside from Rick Baker's makeup, which is obviously an amazing one, Academy Award and stuff like that, um, it doesn't really work in a 2010 film. It feels Mm -hmm. so much more kitschy in a way that the movie, I don't think, is intending. It's trying to kind of update that aesthetic and ends up kind of lingering in a way that feels almost like cosplay. Um, But then at the same time, The Mummy, I would argue, this mummy is definitely sort of in the 180 on the other side of that, where it's just like, oh, hey, we're going to like pretty much do a Tom Cruise action movie, but make it look extremely gray. That's nothing. This movie looks so fucking gray in yeah. a way that makes me so bored. The color palette <laughs> is like fucking muddy, awful, shitty. And just, but not, not in like a muddy sort of like, oh, it's like a dark, like spooky way. It's like, no, it just feels, it looks awful. <laughs> no, um, it just looks like fucking gloomy outside. Like it's not scary bad. It's just like Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the creepy moors of London. It's like shitty metropolitan London on like a rainy <laughs> Sunday. It just yeah. doesn't look appealing at all <laughs> whatsoever. And I hated on this movie when we did the worst of the decade thing. I was mainly just like, oh, it feels like all the worst elements of modern blockbuster filmmaking. And I still stand by a lot of that, which is like so many of like, like the big sort of sequence where the mummy like is attacking the town with her powers. It just looks like, oh, am I watching X-Men Apocalypse? That's what this looks like. So much of this movie like looks like it's Frankenstein together of like all (laughs) these different versions. And I'm not like especially attached to the mummy. Like, of the universe yeah. of monsters, like, that's sort of, like, one of the weaker characters. Like, I think the thir- 1932 Mummy is interesting, just because that movie is more about, like, Boris Karloff plays Emotep, who comes back from the grave, but he's not really malicious. He's just trying to rekindle with his dead love, who, like, they were, like, together back in the time, but then they, like, got separated, and they were both entombed separately in different places. And yeah. he's trying to, like, bring her back to life through, like, a, a new body. But it at least feels like it's a more distinctive personality than this movie ever has. And even, yeah. like, the Brendan Fraser mummy. That one, despite, like, being much more like an action, almost Indiana Jones-esque movie, it has, like, a personality. That's my biggest problem with this movie. It has no personality. It's really just soulless. It feels like a product. And, and that's putting it very mildly. They didn't want to make any kind of genuine piece of art they had an ip and they said fuck it let's do it yeah just the universe was just like let's dig up this i mean look the minions and fast and furious are making us so much money that's obvious <laughs> but we want more money and Can how we about get minions in the dark universe <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm sure that was at some point a step like you no know, i'm Abbott and costello the new Abbott and costello of this generation minions the minions Dude. beat frankenstein <laughs> You joke, but I would fucking go day one. That sounds incredible. That literally sounds like my worst nightmare. 
That, that's that sounds like a, a horrible nightmare I've had. Dude, <laughs> I don't sounds, experience. Dude, think about it. Javier Bardem's Frankenstein hanging out with Kevin and Bob. Friend? Banana? Writes the check. Gold. Let's do this. I am so there. <laughs> Before we do wrap up on The Mummy, we do need to talk a bit more about not just Russell Crowe, but also sort of the big connective tissue of trying to kind of like build this universe as half this movie. Because half of the movie, like I mentioned, is sort of like this lame attempt at like, oh, Nick Morton's gonna like destroy the mummy. And then he has like a tragic thing where it's like, oh no, I'm in the darkness. I have the mummy powers now. I saved you, Annabelle. Now leave! Leave me! <laughs> and it's like, sure. I, I really believe that tragedy on your face. Tom Cruise, that's so great. I, I truly believe all of that. And there's also, that, there, I'll admit, the funny bad thing, the funniest bad thing about this movie is the bit where like, she's been unconscious and she's dead and he's trying to wake her up. And he's just like, just, just wake up! And then he turns into like a weird monster face with fangs. <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> but but then when it's not that movie, it cuts over to Russell Crowe like, oh, I'm part of Prodigium, which is this society that's trying to get all the universal monsters together in this version of this universe. And you see like jars like, oh look, there's Dracula's skull with fangs in it. There's a creature from the Black Lagoon arm. There's all this other shit. Did all that entice you at all to see more universal monster stuff, Ryan? <laughs> Uh, just, just that sick-ass creature hand, but, but, no. That's just my own fandom coming in. Like, even as someone who's, like, an actual fan of any of these movies, like, you'd figure I would be sort of, like, the biggest audience they want to try and grab, because it's like, obviously they're gonna try and, like, let's get normies, but we're get- we already have these guys in the bag. We already got Thomas perfectly in the bag for this movie, clearly. Yeah. And I just see all that stuff, and I'm like, I'd, I'd rather see, like, this is set dressing for, like, uh, ho- Halloween Horror Nights maze. That's that's about as interesting as this gets yeah. to me. Because it doesn't feel like it really has any real investment in the creatures or anything like that. It just feels, oh, we're gonna do this fan service Easter egg bullshit. You love this. And it just, <laughs> it feels like I'm being pandered to, but in a lazy way. Where, yeah. like, Marvel tends to be like, oh, look, here's all the stuff that we are deep dives, really big digs that people will obsess over me fucking 10 YouTube videos about all the different Easter eggs, whatever. There's at least passion in that. This yeah. just feels like, here's a creature arm. You, you'll love me. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, hate me. Um, <laughs> okay, so, alright, we, we've kind of established that this fucking thing does not work. If you had to just restart, just scrap the universe, we're taking it to step one, what would be the monster you start with? How would you get people to go into a universe? Well, at least half of that, I would say, I think, is what Blumhouse is doing with The Invisible Man coming out, which we haven't seen yet. Uh, yeah. This will be releasing, like, the day that it like, oh, has Thursday previews and stuff. We have, we've not seen the particular movie, but even from, like, the moment I heard Universal is doing the Universal Monsters again, I'm like, oh, Blumhouse character-driven, like, individual stories. That's how you definitely wrote people in initially. You don't yeah. do a big universe. You just do, like, here is a new version of, in that in this modern case, The Invisible Man. And it's going to be focused on just telling the best Invisible Man movie we can possibly do in a modern setting. And from what I've heard, a lot of people are saying, like, yeah, it does that really well. Yeah. So that you do that, and then you introduce all these other characters, and then you build up to maybe them meeting at some point. Not immediately. You don't. Batman v Superman list, where it's like, oh, we got one, here you go, they're all here. Uh, you, that famously didn't work for that franchise, either. Um, yeah. At the same time, Invisible Man wouldn't 
is a pretty good choice, I think, because it doesn't feel like it has so much baggage. Like I would mm. say Frankenstein does, or even Dracula. But even tra- Dracula Untold was an attempt to do that. And mainly, the way you feel about this movie, I kind of feel more about Dracula Untold. Where yeah. that is a not a good movie, but at the same time, it's kind of fun for what it is. It feels Absolutely. like somebody watched like the Francis Ford Coppola opening of his Dracula. It was just like, can we make that the whole movie and make it a really absurd action movie? And like I said, not a good movie, but at the same time, kind of fun. There's a whole <laughs> bit where Dracula uses his powers to like clothesline an army. Yeah, <laughs> with his two arms. It's so sick. <laughs> it's it's fucking ridiculous. Uh, but. That's at least more fun, necessarily. And that didn't end up working, though, in terms of kind of reintroducing everybody. I think Frankenstein has similar baggage. You know, I think one that would have worked to do this with is the one who I think has gotten the most short shrift in terms of, like, reboots and stuff, uh, for the most part. The Creature from Black Lagoon. Yeah! But that's what's so interesting is the they had Del Toro on to try and do that. Universal did. And yeah. they were just like, he, he fucks a lady? Who's gonna like want to watch this? And then he makes Sheep of Water, and that wins Best Picture. Everybody loves that movie. <laughs> Dude, everyone wants to watch people get it on with creatures, and then yeah, I mean that that's new. I, that didn't happen, and that was famously not what happened to Creature of the Black Lagoon. So it's just like, what if they fucked though? All these monsters, like the way to revitalize them, get them laid. Well, we, we've clearly exhausted all of our talk about the, the Tom Cruise mummy. So let's go into final thoughts here. Ryan, your final thoughts. Final thoughts on the mummy is that what I remember of it, it's very forgettable. I, I think it's an interesting failure, if nothing else, but um, I'm never going to watch it again. Watch Climax. <laughs> <laughs> nothing else you can take from this it's own universal horror of climax um, hell yeah <laughs> I mean you know if you're gonna do a monster mash movie like there are rumors about them doing like some kind of monster mash movie that would be like a weird dance orgy with the monsters oh dude hell yes <laughs> I like I said before I used to like really loathe this movie and now I'm in a camp where I still very much heavily dislike it but it's not with like a huge amount of animosity as much as, like, that kind of thing you're talking about where it's not necessarily uh, so bad it's good. Because it's too boring to quite be that. It's yeah. never also excels into being good despite itself. Even though I'm sure come, like, 15 fucking years from now they'll be like, Why the Mummy 2017 is an <laughs> underrated gem? I'm like, ugh. Can't wait. Ugh. And, like, what, like, Buzzfleet or whatever the fuck it is <laughs> at that fucking point. I, I, I still would say, like, it's an interesting time capsule. For sure. Like, if someone wants to ask, what was major blockbuster filmmaking like in the mid-2010s? I'd be like, uh, The Mummy is kind of like the, the worst-case scenario of it. It's, it's all, <laughs> like, the, the really bad traits. But also, it's just, it's not, like, horrible enough or offensive enough necessarily to get much ire out of me anymore. Um, so that uh, earlier list, it's now null and void. Good. But still good. listen to that episode. <laughs> <laughs> download as much as you can we gotta get paid <laughs> yes all those podcast books we get paid here for sure and that's the end of our discussion of our two films for the evening about the universal monsters but we still have some more to say uh because we gotta do our wrap up and we're gonna be doing the picking which uh, will be very interesting given someone's missing uh so stay tuned for that uh, but uh first we want to read some feedback because every monday on at dedv pod which is our twitter and facebook page uh we ask you about like hey what's your favorite least favorite things related to whatever topic we're doing and so uh first up james rodriguez says 
Creature from the Black Lagoon is one of my faves, with the Gilman essentially wanting those damn explorers to stop invading his home. Bride of Frankenstein is my all-time favorite, though, being a great example of how to expand upon a classic in a way that feels essential. I also have a soft spot for Stephen Summers' Mummy, especially with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Wise being their marvelous selves as their leads. Um, you can feel the struggle in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, as two half-baked sequels are stitched together for a 74-minute mess, and the less said about Tom Cruise's Mummy, the better. And then uh, Brian Kane says, uh, The Mummy 1999 is a popcorn masterpiece, and I wish that franchise became something better than it ended up being. Um, I actually stayed at a hotel in Waluca Springs, which is where they shot the underwater sequence for Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, so I have a special appreciation for that film as well. Uh, yeah, but, so would you say Creature is like your favorite of like any of the the Universal Monster characters, yeah, probably it, it's it's a real close tie between Creature and Wolfman. R- Brian kind of mentioned this. The underwater photography is groundbreaking in that movie. Oh yeah, absolutely, it's incredible to like to watch the water and like it 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 just has this really creepy voyeuristic feeling to it as well. And you can tell easily like the inspiration for like the Jaws poster. With, like, the shark yes. underneath, clearly comes from the aesthetic of that movie. Absolutely. In such a phenomenal way, yeah. I, I do really like Wolfman. I think especially sort of it creates a lot of the cool moor aesthetics for, like, when he's walking around the woods and the moors are all everywhere. It looks perfect. Yeah. And it's weird that the, the Wolfman actually wasn't one of those that got, like, a lot of his own sequels. He was one of those that they would just throw, and he's sort of like the Hulk of that universe, yeah. of that version of the universe, where, like, they would throw him into, like, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Um, which... The weird thing is, honestly, those crossovers that they did um, are kind of like their own less offensive versions of The Mummy, uh, because they're all, like I said, 70 minutes long. They don't add another 50 fucking minutes like The Mummy <laughs> does. Uh, they do just kind of feel like, oh, well, they're really slapdash, because like, when people say, oh, that, the the sanctity of the Universal Monsters, how dare they try and like touch these great classics. The original movies, yes. <laughs> that whole series... Later on, they just really go full on into, oh, hey, let's just throw these people in. Like, in, I believe it's House of Frankenstein. It's like an anthology movie where, like, it's all connected from, like, Boris Karloff comes back to play, not the monster, but, like, the doctor character, in that case, who's trying to bring back all these different monsters. And so he's, like, a traveling mad scientist who, like, brings back Dracula, who encounters a bunch of characters, and then he dies. That's the first 20 minutes. (laughs) <laughs> and then the second 20 minutes is them um, interacting with the the Wolfman in that same way. And they bring back Frankenstein for, like, the last part of the movie. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman at Bela Lugosi, which is yeah. really sad. <laughs> it's just like, oh. oh. Especially considering he was offered Frankenstein in 1931 and said, no, I'm too handsome for that. <laughs> and years later, <laughs> he needed money. <laughs> so like all those like crossovers are like trying to be part of the universe i guess are just so slapdash and barely movies like house of dracula that i mentioned that's the last big one half of it is stock footage half is just (laughs) stock footage from these other movies um but weirdly adam costello meet frankenstein i revisited for the first time in forever and that one still fucking actually slaps. It's still pretty really? goddamn funny. I would honestly say, yeah, because I think Abin Costello, who I've never like been the hugest fan of necessarily, worked perfectly off the monsters, and the monsters yeah. also are treated 100% seriously, which makes their antics all the funnier. Like, there's a great bit, I think it's probably the iconic moment of that particular movie, where they like are being chased by Frankenstein, and they go into a bedroom, 
and they like lean the door against it to like try and barricade it. And Costello is just like, oh, they're never get, he's never gonna get in here. And the door opens the opposite way. <laughs> they, he immediately comes in and destroys the bed. <laughs> thank you for all that feedback out there, everybody. We also want to thank some other people. We want to thank uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks for Emily Scarda for the art for our show. And thanks to the, the true hero of this particular episode, Ryan Quarterman, for coming in in the nick of time to like, <laughs> no save my ass with this particular one. Uh, Ryan, where can people find you around on the internet? Uh, you can find me on letterboxd.com at uh, Ryan Quarterman, all one word. Then you can also find me on Instagram at Ryan underscore Quarterman, C-O-R-D-E-R-M-A-N. Me me and my friend Zach have a podcast where I talk about my DVD collection, and we haven't posted any episodes yet, but it's coming. We have, like, six episodes recorded already. Eventually, they're going up. Uh, it's called The DVD Stack with Ryan and Zach, and uh, it's because I have a lot of DVDs, and we talk about uh, two movies each episode, and we, we shit on them, and it's pretty great. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, you've pitched me this. The aesthetic is like you're going alphabetically, and you're doing two movies yes. at a time. Yes. Uh, so when I originally pitched it to Zach, I was just going to do one movie each episode, and like episode could be anywhere from like, I don't know, 20 to like an hour, whatever. But then Zach, like, he just kept going, so I went with it, and uh, and now each episode's an hour, and we talk about two movies. Our podcast, like, is way less good than this one, and, and this one, like, you guys put in, like, you guys plan shit for your podcast. And it always <laughs> works out clearly, as is evidence of this yeah. episode. <laughs> Dude, yeah, no, me and Zach just riff the whole time and, and hope to get any kind of salvageable material. I have been invited on to be there at some point in the near future. Yes. I'm not sure when at some point. I do have a couple movies that I'm I'm weighing around for you in particular. Just having not listened to an episode yet, so I don't fully endorse oh. this product. I'm not I'm not like <laughs> the clown like I fully endorse this media or product. When you pitched me that premise, I instantly was so fascinating because when especially you're like somebody like us who grew up in sort of like the big age of like dvds being so over mass produced and populated everywhere at a certain point when you were especially when i was younger i know you were as well you just bought like anything and then now you look back at your dvd collection you're like oh why did i buy this <laughs> why the yeah. fuck was this something i decided to spend money on even if it was like five dollars at walmart <laughs> guys this much uh sneak preview the first episode we talk about abduction and and the 2006 justin long film accepted and uh we are the only people who have ever thought about those films in the last 10 years <laughs> well at least like like individually yeah. some people might be like oh yeah accepted asking about my wiener that guy not got nominated for two oscars after that um <laughs> <laughs> Wait, well, like abduction. The only time anyone's thought of that is like, oh man, John Singleton died. What was his last movie? <laughs> um. Yeah, it's it's good shit, dude. He went out on top. Abduction, secret banger. Uh, that's my BuzzFeed article. Is that it's been ten years? It's time we acknowledge that abduction is a secret banger. But 
Um, for more of our antics here at Double Edge Double Bill, you can follow us, as I mentioned, at DEDBpod. That's our Twitter and Facebook handle. Um, and you can also email us feedback at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. I also do my own individual musings at Not the Who's Tommy on Twitter and uh, Instagram. I also post pictures and drawings and such. And um, I do some writing at both marianithomas.wordpress.com, where I do like reviews and lists and certain things. I should have, not too long after this episode pops up, an Invisible Man review, uh, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm very curious about. And I also do some writing at trueSuperheroFans.com, which has been dormant for about a month or so. We've been kind of trying to restructure certain roles. And I can announce here, I'm now an associate editor over Ooh. at TrueSuperHeroFans.com. Does that mean I get paid? No! That means it's just a <laughs> fancy title. And uh, for more great content like that, that usually has Adam in it, uh, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. And if you're listening on the great ESO network, why not listen to some of the other shows? And of course, also listen to our back catalog on our Podbean uh, app. We have like 67 episodes that we did before we joined ESO. They're also great. Um, and then you can also, if you can, just rate, review, or share the show around to give us more visibility on whatever these platforms. We would really appreciate that as well. But now comes the part where we do the picking. As I say at the top of the show, usually Adam and I, either two good movies, two bad movies, and uh, we each guess number between one and ten in order to get the good and the bad feature. But uh, given this situation where um, Adam did provide me some picks, so I do have, these are Adam's uh, sanctioned, approved picks. His two good picks, then I have my two bad picks. For uh, next week's topic, uh, we're doing just something for fun. We've teased this episode several times because we've covered many films from this particular production company, but um, it's one that we love and adore. It's uh, the Canon Film Group, which uh, has made plenty of bad, awesome schlock movies from the 80s, like you know, the Death Wish sequels, or Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, or Superman 4 The Quest for Peace, or most of the Chuck Norris movies that came out in the 80s. So just produce high-quality cinema. The A24 of their day, the canon films. Hell, hell yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. Uh, are you familiar at all with the lovely film library of canon? <laughs> uh, very minimal amount, honestly. Well, I guess you need an education. I'm going to send you some of those DVDs just so you can put them on on your DVD shelf show. <laughs> but now, Ryan, both Adam's two good picks and my two bad picks. I have assigned numbers between one and ten for uh, both of those. Uh, they're on two separate planes on that. Uh, so you will have to pick number between one and ten for both Adam's good choices and my two bad choices. So first for the good choices, Ryan, number between one and ten. Three. So per Adam's wishes at... Number four, I have, uh, from Adam's picks, Death Wish 3, the Charles Bronson classic, the film debut of Alex Winter, and also a movie where everyone praises as Charles Bronson blows people away in the middle of a small town. Hell yeah. Yes. And then at number 10, he had Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which I will honestly say is my favorite of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. Nice. So now for my two bad picks, Ryan, number two, one and ten. I'm going to go six. Okay. So, speaking of Chuck Norris, um, I have one of his many films, probably his most infamous one for canon. I have, right on the dot, at number six, Invasion USA. Cool. Which, if you don't know, is a movie where, uh, it's basically like Red Dawn, uh, where a bunch of communists come in and, like, take over a small suburban town. So Chuck Norris is like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ride a tank 
into the suburban town. <laughs> Hell yes! <laughs> and then at number one, oddly enough, uh, just to show you how sort of uh, the good and bad terms are so nebulous with canon, um, I had at number one, Death Wish 3. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's so many ways you can interpret canon. Uh, so that'll be interesting, though. Invasion USA and Death Wish 3. That'll be quite interesting, if nothing else, right? Dude, what if I would have guessed Death Wish 3 for both picks. Oh, it's a Death Wish 3 double feature. Now, from our good feature, Death Wish 3, to our bad feature, Death Wish 3. Can I change my numbers so you guys have to do two, two Death Wish 3 reviews? Nope, it's on wax, it's canon now, that's not Fuck. <laughs> Oh, you're so shamed. You know what, I'm gonna chase you out of here with uh, pitchforks and torches, Ryan. Get back, monster. <laughs> I guess you became Seth Rogen at the end of that, sure. <laughs> I don't know, dude. Good night, everybody. <laughs>